A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Bah, humbug. Of course, Charles Dickens made that line famous in his classic book, A Christmas Carol. But humbug really is a word. Most of you are probably more cultured than me, smarter than me. You already knew humbug was a word. But I always kind of had the suspicion that it was just a word that Dickens invented for his character Scrooge. Kind of like, is fiddlesticks really a word? I don't know. We'd have to look it up. Look it up in your smartphone, somebody. Fiddlesticks is probably a word. But I thought it was kind of in that same category, like humbug. Is it really a word? I don't know. Maybe it's just a colorful Scroogeism that Dickens invented. But I did look it up in the dictionary, and it is there. Its emergence into the English language predates Dickens' book by nearly 100 years. Humbug has, for the most part, fallen out of everyday use for most English speakers. And if you're like me, you've never heard the word humbug, except around Christmas time, and then only in connection to Ebenezer Scrooge, or somebody who's acting kind of Scroogey, right? But <laughs> have any of you ever heard the word humbug outside of a Christmas context? Cheryl McCardle. Anybody else? A couple of you. Okay. <laughs> well, I never had. But according to Merriam-Webster, humbug means this. It is a willfully false, deceptive, or insincere person, or something designed to deceive and mislead. So in A Christmas Carol, if it was written today, I suspect what Scrooge would say is not humbug, he would say, bah, hogwash, <laughs> bah, baloney. <laughs> I like humbug better, but baloney. I don't know how that ever came to be a thing. But, but it occurs to me as, I, as, as that realization dawned on me that the suspicion of humbuggery surrounding holidays is something most of us have probably experienced. For example, how many of you have heard or even expressed the sentiment that Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, these are just made-up holidays invented by corporate America to move product? Greeting cards, flowers, trinkets, knickknacks, candies, it's all a bunch of humbug. You might as well just roll up and start shoveling money into the corporate headquarters at those holidays. Isn't that true? We look at those holidays and we go, bah, humbug. Corporate America is pulling our strings, and we're just gullible enough to open our wallets and step right into their little trap. It's a big con. It's all a bunch of humbug. That's essentially what Scrooge is saying about Christmas. Now, A Christmas Carol is a story about the conversion of Ebenezer Scrooge from a grouchy, stingy, shabby, judgmental man to a joy-filled, generous, kind, and helpful man. And this conversion famously occurs overnight after Scrooge is visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And overnight, these three ghosts visit Scrooge, and I almost wore my nightshirt tonight to preach this in. Wouldn't that have been great? That would have been a sight. And, sh <laughs> and, sh 
And these ghosts appear to Scrooge, and they show him visions. And as a result, Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning a transformed man. And Dickens writes this. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and he little heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. Dickens wrote of Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas well. But here's the thing. I suspect that if that transformed Scrooge time-traveled from Christmas past in 1843 to visit us in the present and witnessed how our culture observes the Christmas holiday today, if he saw how expert our marketers were at separating people from their money, if he witnessed the Black Friday madness, the stressed-out parents struggling to meet expectations that exceed their budget, if he saw the credit card debt, and how the happiness of Americans was tied to getting, not giving. If Ebenezer Scrooge saw all that, he would say, and he would not be wrong, humbug. It's all a big con. These people are deceived, some of them willfully. Scrooge was converted away from a greedy love of things. And he was converted into, according to Dickens, a churchgoer who sought his joy in the joy of others. He became a man who questioned beggars and who set a course for Bob Cratchit's house with a goose under his arm. Our culture's observance of Christmas looks a lot more like Scrooge before he went to bed than the man who woke up the next morning. And don't you wish that America could fall asleep tonight and be visited by visions that would show us the error of our ways as a people. And we would all wake up repentant and change tomorrow. What a new America we would wake up in if we had a Dickens-like transformation overnight tonight. Now, I don't mean to sound preachy, but I am kind of a preacher, so I'll just go with it. <laughs> for for non-believers, Christmas is a pretty empty, humbug kind of affair. Really, at best, tis the season to be jolly. It's just a season. And the Christmas season is undeniably special, but even at its best, it is still just a temporary season. And once December 26th arrives on the calendar, the tree is hauled to the curb, the credit card bill comes in the mail, the toy breaks, everyone's sick of the songs, sick from eating too much, all the goodwill and merriness burns away like so much mist before the sun. The only thing worse than hearing a Christmas carol in October is hearing one in January. I promise you this. <laughs> You've had it. You're full. You don't want to hear that stuff anymore. Now Dickens wrote that others said of Scrooge, 
that he knew how to keep Christmas well. And I think that part of that is going to be tied to this, that for those who know the full meaning of Christmas, this special season is a reminder of the enduring reason we have to be jolly. I, I think we should change the lyrics to that song. Not from tis the season to be jolly. How sad a statement is that? But tis the reason to be jolly. Although wonderful and exciting, Christmas time is really just a pale foreshadowing of the pleasures that have been promised to us when Jesus returns. For a non-believer, this world is as good as it gets. Have you ever thought about that before? If you're a non-believer here this morning, this world is as good as it gets. This is it. This is the very summit of your joy. But if you're a believer here this morning, all the good stuff is yet to come, and this is as bad as it gets. So Dickens wrote that Scrooge knew how to keep Christmas well, and I pray that the same would be said of us as we observe the holiday this year. And of course, that will not come by looking to Dickens and Scrooge. <laughs> we aren't Scroogeians after all. What are we? Well, we're Christians. We're not followers of Scrooge, we're followers of Jesus. And Scrooge's example to us is only good insofar as it points us to Jesus. And I think in some ways it does. I actually think there's a pretty rich theology behind a Christmas carol. Maybe we'll leave that for another day. No, we are sincere, from the heart, imitators of Jesus in this room. We are people who are committed as a body of believers to loving God, loving others, and love in action. And what does that translate to? How do we observe Christmas as a people who are committed to that? Well, we need to look to Jesus to learn how to keep Christmas well. So it is my prayer not that we would be visited by three ghosts tonight, but that we would be visited by the Holy Ghost powerfully over the next three Sundays as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. And to help us do that, we'll be spending time in Titus 2, 11 through 14. Years ago, I sat under the teaching of a pastor. His name was Tim Westcott, great guy. And he was one of those pastors who was constantly challenging his people to commit things to memory, scriptures to memory. And one of the scriptures that he challenged me to memorize was Titus 2, 11 through 14. And it just happened to be at Christmas time that I was memorizing these scriptures. And as I was memorizing them, I saw something really cool. At least I thought so. Maybe you will too. And it was this. That verse 11 speaks about Christmas past. Verse 12 speaks about Christmas present. And verse 13 talks about Christmas's future. Here's verse 11, Christmas past. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's a clear reference. The, the appearance of grace is talking about Bethlehem, Jesus, his emergence on the scene, his arrival in the flesh. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then verse 12, Christmas present, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And then Christmas's future. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There it is. Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And so this morning and the next two Sundays, we're going to break it out that way. This morning, we're going to talk about Christmas past. The appearance of grace. I'll read it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That appearing has been lovingly depicted in innumerable Christmas pageants, paintings, cards, songs, ornaments. We all have in our minds the images of that first Christmas. Mary stooped over a manger, a choir of angels visiting shepherds, exotic wise men arriving on camels. All of it is indelibly etched into our minds and wrapped up with our happiest memories, many of us. That is the appearing that Paul makes reference to in Titus 2.11. And there are a lot of wonderful, weighty words in this verse that we could focus on this morning that would lead us into a deeper enjoyment of the meaning and significance of Christmas. Let's start, for example, with the word God. How unique is the God of Christianity? As Christians, we worship a God who is so much higher and bigger than us that we as his followers have to become very comfortable with mystery. And there is a lot of mystery surrounding the Christmas story. And perhaps the most mysterious moment of all is when Mary's God came to be conceived within Mary. Ponder with me the mystery of this moment. God is so big, so deep, so high, so wide. He is completely without borders. There is no limit or end to him. At the moment when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, she would conceive in her womb the omnipresent, a God who is everywhere, all at once, all of him, from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the Himalayas, from Van Buren to Holton, from the bottom of the ocean to the tops of the Himalayas, all the way out to the far reaches of the galaxy and beyond, all of him was everywhere all at once and not spread thin like peanut butter over a piece of toast. All of him is everywhere all at once. And then in a moment... God laid aside and willingly limited himself to the small confines of Mary's womb. Oceans and oceans contained in a thimble. God is all-knowing. But in this mysterious moment, the all-knowing laid aside his divine attributes and willed that he should take on the simple, limited intellect of a developing fetus. The all-powerful God, so powerful that he spoke the world into being out of nothing. Raising mountains, carving out valleys, and separating the waters from the land, and earth from the heavens by sheer force of his will. The God who spoke, and out of nothing, everything that is, came into existence. That God who is so powerful, he can create the world chose to be born as a feeble baby, lacking the power even to burp on his own without assistance. 
The God who is rich beyond measure willed himself to be born into the care of two poor teenagers, so poor that they would place the baby Jesus in a feeding trough for his crib. And most amazingly, more amazing even than the omnipresent or the all-knowing or the all-powerful God laying aside those attributes and becoming a baby is this fact. The perfectly righteous God, the holy, holy, holy who knew no sin and who was perfectly and completely without wrongdoing of any kind, would would go to the cross and there become sin, the very personification of wrong in our place. He came at Christmas to do all this for, uh, for us. He lowered himself beyond all comprehension that we might be lifted up beyond our wildest imaginings. So we could talk about the word God, and I could fill a month of Sundays just on that word. Or what about the word grace? We never tire of this word, do we? Really, this is what separates Christianity from all the other religions. We could talk about God, but so could lots of other religions talk about their God and how amazing their God is. But their God, they can't talk about grace because grace is uniquely Christian. If mercy is not giving someone what they richly deserve, isn't that what mercy is? You deserve it, but I'm not going to give it to you. (laughs) That's mercy. Grace is giving someone riches that they do not deserve. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. What do we richly deserve? (laughs) Death. We've earned it. But the free gift of God, that's grace, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has given us something we do not deserve. He is not just withheld the stick. He's given us loads of wonderful things. Most and foremost among them, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's given us relationship with him that's whole and redeemed. So we could talk about grace. Or we could talk about salvation. That's another great word. We could spend a lot of time enjoying its significance together. But the word I feel most drawn to think about this morning is a word I think in the midst of this verse that gets a little less press. And that's the word appeared. The word appeared in the Greek in your Bibles comes from the Greek word epiphany from which we derive, of course, our English word, epiphany. And it means, essentially, a manifestation, the making visible of something, usually a glorious something. John was speaking of this in his gospel when he wrote, and this is from the passage of Scripture that Andrew read at the front of our service this morning. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, and we have seen. That's epiphany. That's appearing in a visible way. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says of Jesus that He is the very, quote, image of God. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, that which was formerly known to us intellectually became visible, became accessible with our senses when Jesus took on flesh. 
He is the very image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Or some versions say the exact representation of his nature. Jesus himself said in John 14.9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Son and the Father are so completely one in divine will and character and desire and so completely the same in divine essence and power that we should understand that to correctly see Jesus is to correctly see and understand the heart of the Father in heaven. They are one. Jesus came to make visible the glory of God, the heart of God, the living out of the nature of God and his commands, his word. And this appearance of grace that brings salvation is personified in the flesh and blood appearance of Jesus at Bethlehem. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. See it which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. One of the reasons I enjoy the word appeared this Christmas season is because although religion, I, I heard another pastor one time define religion as man's search for God, Christianity is really about God's coming for man. He is the decisive agent. He is both the author and perfecter of our faith. It is he who began a good work within us, and it is also him who sees it through to completion. Uh, several weeks ago, we touched briefly on the story from John 4 about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. You know the story, perhaps. Jesus is traveling through Samaria. A woman comes out to the well, and Jesus... Um, this is no chance encounter, by the way. Jesus, before the foundations of the earth was laid, knew about this encounter with the woman at the well. And he falls into conversation with her, and the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she tries to distract him away from what he's trying to talk about. He, <laughs> she tries to throw a theological argument to double down on the differences between them. She says this to him, 
our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say, she's saying as a Jewish man, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, she's saying, Samaritans, we say worship here. You say worship there. We're not the same. You can't talk to me this way. And Jesus says to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then get this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, in this encounter, this is so interesting to me in light of Christmas and Jesus' appearing, his coming to us. In this story, she essentially says, where must man go to find God? Our mountain or yours? And Jesus said, the Father is seeking man. And I'm here talking to you. This is a, this is a wild moment. This is a world-altering moment when we understand it rightly. Christianity is not a come-and-see religion. It's not a this mountain or that mountain. It is a go-and-tell. It's, it's Jesus coming to us and his people going to you. The Christianity is about a God's coming to man because man doesn't have the wisdom or the desire to come to him. This is a profound moment, I think. And when you look at other world religions, how many sacred shrines are there around the globe today? How many places where man, if they go there, it is an especially holy place? It is a place where if you go there and you make the right offering, you can have an encounter with God there. But Christianity is about the appearance of Jesus on the scene. It's about Him coming to us. And this has profound implications for our Christmas and how we're going to live it out. Really, Christmas is much more about a death than a birth. I, one of my, I, I won't say pet peeves, because I, I understand why. People, when they're explaining Christmas to children, oftentimes say it's Jesus' birthday. And that's true. It is the time when we uh, recognize and celebrate the birth of Jesus. But I, I don't personally ever use that language with my children or anybody. I don't describe Christmas as Jesus' birthday because I think Christmas has much more to do with a death than a birth. The reason why Jesus' birth was significant because it was only by putting on flesh that he could enter the arena with death and be hung on a cross. And because Jesus preexisted his birth, we really shouldn't view that first Christmas as the beginning of Jesus' life but rather the beginning of his deliberate movement towards death. That's what Christmas is. This is the beginning of the rescue mission. This is when Boots hits the sand at Normandy. That's what Christmas is. It's an invasion of this world by our God against the prince of this world. And that rescue mission is now being continued through the church. 
2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He took that beach, and then he's saying, follow me up into the dunes. <laughs> That's what the church is all about. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the question that this presses in on my heart is, has the grace of God that brings salvation yet appeared in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the midst of our relationships? Jesus said, as I, I am sending you as I was sent, John 20, 21. Even as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Just as I appeared in Bethlehem, I am calling you to go and show up with the hope of the gospel right where you're planted, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in the midst of your relationships. And do we live in such a way that when we speak about our hope in Jesus and the gospel and salvation that people see sincerity, or do they cry, bah humbug? Because you see, in our culture today, it's very common for people to look at the church and say it's just a big con. <laughs> it's a bunch of humbug. They're pulling your strings because they want something from you. And I think there are two twin pillars of evangelism. Yes, we should speak the truth, but we should also live in a way that agrees with that good confession. If we say one thing, but then live in a way that denies it, that is pure humbug. It's a willfully misleading thing. It's deceptive. It's hypocrisy, baloney, hogwash, whatever you want to call it. For today, let's call it humbug. It's a deception to say that God's word is truth and then live a lie. And the world has little patience for humbug. A long ago now, so long ago this information is probably obsolete, I was a business major in college. I don't know why. <laughs> Who knows? But I took a lot of marketing classes. And marketing is the science of making an appeal to somebody, right? They taught us all about this. And we, weren't, we learned words in my marketing classes like pecuniary pseudo-truth. You, have you ever heard the word pecuniary pseudo-truth? This is a marketing term. It means stating something as if it were true, but which is not intended to be believed. <laughs> For example, um, we have the best hamburger this side of the Mississippi. That's a pecuniary pseudo-truth. You're stating it as if it were true, but a reasonable person wouldn't say, I actually had a better burger, I want my money back. <laughs> you can't legally be on the hook for making a claim like that. But what this all amounts to is in our culture, we take what people say with a grain of salt, right? Everybody's marketing something. Everybody's trying to make a pitch. And Americans are so 
pitch savvy. How many commercials have you sat through in your life? I should have done some research. There's probably numbers available. My guess is it's millions. Millions that I've driven by and heard on the radio and watched on TV. Americans are constantly being sold something. And so when they encounter a Christian who starts talking about the gospel, their first instinct is to go, they're selling me something. What's in it for them? What do they want from me that they think I should become a follower of Jesus? Maybe this pastor just wants to pad his stats. Maybe he wants more money for his church. More people come, more tithers. Maybe that's good for him. I'm not playing along humbug. You think I'm that small-minded, pathetic, and easy mark? (laughs) These are the kinds of things people think. The world has very little patience for humbug. And it takes grit to be the real deal. But please hear this. Being the real deal does not mean you need to be perfect to have a witness. It does not mean you have to have a faultless track record in order to speak up and say anything about Jesus and the gospel and the truth of the Bible. But it does mean you have to be honest. You have to be honest about your failings. You have to demonstrate repentance. I'm constantly... uh, sinning in front of my children. (laughs) Not constantly, don't judge me, okay? But sometimes sometimes it happens in big ways, little ways. Uh, My children have a front row seat to the reality of the, they have a backstage pass to the Josh show, you know. They see it all. They see when I'm not at my best, and I respond to my wife in ways that can only be described as sinful. They, they, they see it when I lose my cool and I yell at them. They, they see my sins. Sometimes they've witnessed me watching television shows that are not edifying. Do you know what I have to do as a Christian dad to preserve my witness before my children? <laughs> Is when the Holy Spirit convicts me or my wife or somebody else about something sinful I've done in front of my children, I don't say I've blown it, I can never talk to them about Jesus or the gospel ever again. I'm a hypocrite, I'm ruined. I go to them and I say, I sinned. Kids, what you saw earlier between me and your mom, I was just sinning. That was wrong, it was bad. And some of you are slow to talk about the gospel, not because you're a coward, Not because you lack faith or belief. Some of you are slow to bring it up because you feel like you have ruined your witness in front of family members. They know you. How can you talk about Jesus when they were with you when you did that thing? How can you talk about Jesus before your coworkers when you were at that Christmas party two years ago? Where, you know, this goes on and on and on. I'll tell you where you can start. By saying to them, I failed to live up to what I think is true in that moment. I sinned, and I've regretted that since that happened. And it's important to me that you know that I think that what I did there was wrong. Being an ambassador, brothers and sisters, is a gritty, courageous business. You have not been, in becoming a Christian, you have not been called to frou-frou work. This is tough sometimes. This is where the rubber hits the road as far as the sincerity of our call goes. 
And I think the church needs to appear this Christmas as Jesus appeared on that first Christmas, which means being physically present and with proclamations of good news of great joy that will be for all people. Because it is a wonderful story. And it's a wonderful story that we're living in that's true, that still has its final chapter yet to be written, even though, spoiler alert, (laughs) we have some clues. It was wrong to murder Jesus. But through that wrong act, we were made right. It was through an act of wickedness that we were made righteous. It was through an injustice that we were justified. It was through an act of wrath and violence that we found comfort and peace. That, this is Christmas. Jesus came as a redeemer, which is to say that he took what was crooked and wrong and wicked and broken and unjust, and he somehow made peace with those things. And this Christmas, we get to give people God. Wow. And as we seek our joy and the joy of others this Christmas, as we seek to give people that gift of eternal life, spoken of in Romans 6.23, my hope and prayer is that those who look on would say of us what they said of Scrooge. Those people know how to keep Christmas well if anyone possesses the knowledge. They haven't gotten caught up in this humbug con game (laughs) that is Christmas today. There's steel in the way they observe Christmas. There's something real and meaty at the bottom of their joy. This isn't about a season for them. This is about a reason. There's something more to it, the way those Jesus followers observe this holiday. And that's something our culture really desperately needs. It's a plastic, throwaway, disposable culture. And we can offer something different as Christians who have a real reason for the jolliness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you have spoken to us this morning through your word. Father, I pray that you would continue this conversation over the next two Sundays as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. I'm looking forward to next Sunday when we talk about the Christmas present and what this past appearing trains us to be like in the present. Father, I'm looking forward beyond that even to Christmas' future. What is all this pointing us towards? What is the great hope to come? Father, Christmas is a time of anticipation, expectation, joy, It's a time when far-flung loved ones are gathered home. It's a time of feasting and celebration. In other words, it is like a pale foreshadowing of the day when Jesus comes back. That is a day, Lord, when we will all be gathered home. And there will be feasting and celebration and a joy that is unmarred by any kind of humbuggery. Father, thank you for being the real deal. Thank you for giving us something that we can, something sturdy and solid that we can build upon our lives. And Father, help us to go out from here being the real deal. Father, that may mean going to someone and saying when we have been about humbug, 
not consistent in our witness. It may mean involve confessions and repentance. But Father, help us to go. And for those, Lord, who struggle to live the gospel, I pray you, you would convict them there. For those who have trouble speaking the gospel, I pray that you would give us opportunities and the courage to go with it. And Father, I pray in all of it, you would be glorified and that we would be filled with joy this Christmas as we seek our joy in the joy of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.